in reflecting about what to speak about not self this afternoon I decided to um, point mostly to some of the words of the Buddha and to some extent let them speak for themselves but also to explore a little bit my own understanding of some of those words the first the first uh, little bit I'll share not so much directly reading but just to tell the story of someone who came to the Buddha and uh, said basically so tell me Buddha tell me is there a self and the Buddha sat silently and then he said well so then is there no self and the Buddha sat silently and at that point the uh, person kind of got up perplexed and wandered away so when directly asked this question the Buddha didn't answer the question and another text I think brings in a little bit more uh, what to me is it feels like a, a little bit of a reflection on this same subject is what I referred to the other day and I'll read parts of this one to you The Buddha says, This world, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. To some extent, speaking to that same question of does a self exist, does a self not exist? He says, but for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. Elsewhere, the Buddha says, what I call the world is this fathom-long body with its contact with the, with the sense bases. So he's exploring essentially the world of, of experience. When, when seen with wisdom, the arising of experience, there's no notion of non-existence. And with seen with wisdom, the ending of experience, there's no notion of existence. Walking in a way, the middle between these two notions of is there a self, is there not a self? You could almost reframe it, you know, what, what um, that when we see with wisdom the arising of experience. For one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, there is no notion of not-self 
in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of self in regard to the world. He goes on. The world, this world is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But one with right view does not become engaged and cling. And cling through that engagement and clinging mental standpoint adherence underlying tendency. It's a hard sentence to parse. But this next part I get. He does not take a stand about myself. One with right view does not take a stand about myself. He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arises and what ceases is only suffering ceases. So again, pointing not so much to self, not self, but presence of suffering, cessation of suffering. This being key to his teaching. All exists, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, the Tathagata teaches the Dharma by the middle. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. And he continues on through the entire chain of dependent origination. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations, etc. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. So to me, he's pointing here, he's, he directly says that the, the teaching by the middle all exists is one extreme, all doesn't exist is, is another extreme. Conditioned phenomenon. He basically points to process. When this comes to be, that comes to be. When this ceases, that ceases. Elsewhere, he also kind of directly connects the understanding of conditionality to what we could call a teaching of not-self, and this is, this is a framing that uh, I think Tanisaro Bhikkhu's really been uh, instrumental in helping, that it's not a teaching of no-self. It's a teaching... that... that, that uh, how, how, not sure quite how to put this, but um, it's not that there is no-self, but again, you know, it's, it's that the notion of self is not relevant. To me, that's kind of how I understand this not-self uh, framing of the, the teaching. The notion of self is not relevant. So in this uh, sutta that I'm going to read, the Buddha kind of directly says this, or comes as close to saying this as I think he comes. I'm going to pick this up in the middle of this discourse. Um, they're having a conversation about the four kinds of nutriment, um, and uh, the Buddha is talking about um, this, and he makes a reference to feeling. 
And the person says, Venerable Sir, who feels? And the Buddha responds, Not a valid question. I do not say one feels. If I should say one feels, in that case, this would be a valid question. Venerable Sir, who feels? But I do not speak thus. Since I do not speak thus, if one should ask me, Venerable Sir, with what as condition does feeling come to be? This would be a correct question. This would be a valid question. So again, pointing to conditionality. He says, who feels? That's not, there's not even, you can't even ask. He says, it's not even a valid question to ask. Can't answer that question. He points him to a, a more valid question. What's the conditions leading to feeling? With what as condition does feeling come to be? The valid answer to this is with contact as condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as condition, craving. This person's a little slow. The next question they ask is, Venerable Sir, who craves? You can guess what the Buddha responds to this. (laughs) So directly pointing to, again, conditionality that he kind of sidesteps the whole question of self here. It's like, this is not a valid question. So likewise, you know, is there no self is equally not a valid question. Kind of as I pointed to last night, the, um, the notion of, I mean, there's, there's a process here. There's a process happening. We can't say this process doesn't exist. This process clearly is unfolding. But we can't say there's anything existing in this process either. In one of the um, most central discourses on the teaching of anatta, not self, irrelevancy of self, the Buddha explores what we usually think of as self. He begins to kind of unpack what it is we, we think of it as self. And he uses this framework of the five aggregates that I spoke of the other day. And the first piece he says about this is that you know, looking at each of the five aggregates, the first thing he asks the, um, his listeners, his um, disciples to ponder, to contemplate, is whether there's any control around those things that we think of as self. So he explores with every of each of the five aggregates. He says... And I'll read two of these. I'll read the first and the last. Remember, the five aggregates are form, 
body, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And I'll read this passage with respect to the first and the last form in consciousness, because I think they both kind of, they both get to us, both of these. We can really relate to what he says about both of these. But the pattern is repeated for the other, so you can extrapolate for yourself. Form is not self. If form were self, the body would not lend itself to affliction. And it would be possible to determine of the body, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. But because form is not self, body leads to affliction. It is not possible to say, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. Consciousness is not self. If consciousness were self, consciousness would not lend itself to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is not self, consciousness leads to affliction, and it is not possible to say, let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. I think you've all seen this week that it is impossible to say, let my consciousness be thus. Wouldn't we do that if we could? (laughs) So actually, I think about this very bit, this very thing the Buddha points to here about the fact that we don't have control over these five processes. In a way, he's pointing to evidence for anatta, evidence for the fact that self is not relevant. Actually, I kind of like that framing of it. Self is not relevant. As I said, I think yesterday or the day before sometime, when we have particular filters, it's very hard to see evidence for the contrary. We may see the evidence, but just not connect it at all with what it's telling us. And this, the Buddha's pointing to, um, you know, look at, look at the lack of control there is. Control is actually one major area. You know, we, we feel when uh, there's a sense of I or me or mine, there's often a sense of I'm in charge, I'm in control, or I'm not in control, one or the other. But there's a sense somehow relating to control. And we know, I mean... We, we hear this, yeah, no, I can't say let my body be thus. We know that. We, we know we can't say let my consciousness be thus, but we don't take it in and understand it as evidence for not-self. It's pointing us to this very truth. We see it, it's staring us in the face, and we don't see it. The next part of this text, the Buddha goes on to look at each, again, each of the 
aggregates, and he asks it does a kind of a Socratic dialogue with the people he's talking to, and he asks with each one. So, form. Is it permanent? Is it impermanent? It's impermanent. What is impermanent? Is that reliable? Is it a place, essentially? Is it reliable as a place on which you can find lasting happiness? The very... uh, impermanent nature of all aspects of our experience inherently make them unreliable as a place uh, like we can say yep that's going to make me happy because of impermanence it will go away it will fade it will pass so inherently things that are impermanent are unreliable as a place of lasting happiness and then the Buddha goes on Is something that is out of control, impermanent, unreliable, something that makes sense to call a self? Well, this is a question we could ask ourselves. Um, in the time of the Buddha, the uh, I understand that um, you know the spiritual traditions. Many of the spiritual traditions were seeking for permanent, reliable, blissful, merging with God, oneness, something like that. And that that is like the higher self, the true self. But that was the, that was the goal in a way, to find this higher self, this true self, this permanent, reliable, blissful experience, meeting, Unification, conjoining. So the Buddha, in referring to this, these aspects, well, is it reliable? Is it permanent? Is it in your control? Is kind of undermining the usual ways in which people define the self or people in the spiritual traditions at the time of the Buddha were looking for Stability, happiness. And basically the Buddha says, you're not going to find happiness in this uh, changing uh, realm of experience. You're not going to find happiness clinging to this changing realm of experience. So I think part of what this sutta encourages for us is to look at what we call self and to in- investigate it. Is it worth, is it worthy of being called self? Is it worthy of being called self? What are, ide- what are our ideas about self? Investigate that. What do we take to be self? To me, that's really the encouragement of this sutta. Not so much to believe, yes, what's, you know, not to just take this in and say, okay, well, form's impermanent, therefore it can't be a self or shouldn't be called a self, but to look at what is it that I think of as self. Make that exploration. So, a few ways that I've thought of 
uh, you know, f- from from my my experience and in conversation with others, what do we call self? Often it seems to include some kind of sense of solidity, of thingness. It it also often has a kind of a a sense of continuity that, you know, memory plays into this. We remember things from the past. And, um, you know, they somehow continue into the present. There's kind of a consistency of habits and patterns over time. You know, we, we, we may kind of identify, yeah, I'm, I'm the miserable person. That's me. And this was, this was one of my own uh, kind of delusions, my identification around being miserable. I was that miserable person. And, you know, when non-miserableness arose, you know, there were times I was happy. And when I was happy, the mind said something like, well, yeah, you're happy now, but what you're really is miserable. You're really a miserable person. You know, not able to take in the absence of miserable person, essentially. So that that continuity, you know, the continuity or the projection of habits and patterns, identification with habits and patterns, the idea is is what we're uh, holding to in a way. And you've looked at ideas in your mind. There's not much there. Not much there. Much of what we think of as self if when we really look at it, when we really look at what is it that I am identifying with, what is it that I take to be self, much of what we identify with is concept, is idea. Another main place or big place around uh, identification is being the one who has control, who decides, who chooses. So that's essentially identification with the the mental formations aspect, you know, the one who, who makes decisions. And again, as we observe this decision process unfolding, we watch a condition of thirst arise, an intention arise in the mind to satisfy that thirst and get a drink of water. An intention arise following that to propel the body into motion, to take the action to get the water. When our minds are clear, we watch this unfold like dominoes falling. It's like, wow, who's in control here? No one making that decision. Causes and conditions, conditioning decision. Who decides? Not a valid question. If we look at the chain of dependent origination, we could say with ignorance as condition, mental formations come to be. With ignorance as condition, choice comes to be. Or if we're 
in a pure state of mind we can see with wisdom as condition choice comes to be. No one deciding conditions unfolding. Conditions are unfolding. It's not that there's that this process is uh, illusion. There is a process. There is process happening. The illusion is that we experience that process and then attribute, I did that. I made that choice. I decided to get up. I decided to act on that meditation instruction. Wasn't that a great idea? I did that just right that time. Imputing self to a a dynamic unfolding process. Another way that we seem to uh, identify, and this one was kind of mystifying to me in a way when I uh, began seeing it. It's like, I could see I was not in control of consciousness. I was not in control of knowing. I could see it was all unfolding, causes and conditions. But I sure felt like the one who was experiencing all of it. Sure felt like there was a me there experiencing the results of all of those choices. I went and reported that to my teacher, and he said, keep looking, <laughs> keep observing. What is it that you're taking to be self? And, and my, 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 what I reported to him is, I can't see through that. He said, notice that thought. That very thought was, the, was an aspect of the selfing. So just keep looking, (laughs) just keep looking. Um, Let's see, what more do I want to say here? To me, often the sense of self, when we really start exploring is this sense of self? It's like, um, I used the analogy of mercury the other day. When you try to pin it down, it just kind of shatters into pieces. You can't really pin down mercury. Kind of like that with uh, the sense of self. When we start looking, it's like, I can't see it. We don't, it's funny, we don't take that as evidence for not-self. We figure, I must not be seeing it right. I must not be looking right. I must not have figured out what it actually is because I can't see it. I know it's there. Rather than taking the fact of the not-finding to be truth. It's not a mistake that we can't find it when we look for it. Joseph Goldstein says sometimes, the not finding is the finding. 
sometimes a sense of self just feels really clear, that's a great time to, um, to look at what it is that I'm taking to be me or mine in this situation. Sometimes it's like, wow, there, there's this sense of me, sense of self-righteousness or, you know, self-righteousness is a kind of a really clear feeling of me at times. Again, just watching, looking. I I had one experience on one retreat that this was just so clear. I was caught in self-righteousness. I could see it. Boy, sure felt like me. I felt like the, you know, I was about 40 at the time, and I I remember identifying as I'm this 40-year-old. I'm right. I am absolutely right. And I was in my analytical self, you know, this feeling. It was a very distinct feeling. So the self-righteousness and the, the confidence and my analytical abilities and knowing that I knew the answer, I was right. And it, it was suffering. It was clearly suffering. I was experiencing that suffering. And I was doing walking meditation, experiencing this whole complex of stuff. And uh, and a truck drove up outside the meditation hall, and it was really loud. It was like, you know, the brakes squealed and the door slammed, and and I was I was pretty present. You know, I might have thought that aversion might arise, you know, given my proclivities. But what arose instead was this: uh, it's a truck. And I felt like I went from being this 40-year-old, argumentative, analytical, to being a two-year-old, just like right in the middle of this, like joy of the banging and the crashing and the... In a split second, one self disappeared and another self appeared. Really, really clearly showing the non-thingness of both, actually. And as I mentioned the other day, when I talked about dependent origination, you know, I really see so much the, the interweaving of these two teachings, the teaching on dependent origination and the teaching on anatta. How the... exploration of suffering is the same thing as the exploration of selfing. So when we're studying suffering, we're studying selfing. If we're studying selfing, we're getting to know suffering. Both are described by this teaching of dependent origination.
one of my favorite teachings of the Buddha. Is the Bahiya Sutta? It's a it's a beautiful teaching where someone who is not a Buddhist actually thought himself to be enlightened and got a visit from a celestial being, we'll say, who said to him, "You know, you're not enlightened." But if you want to be enlightened, you ought to go find the Buddha and talk to the Buddha. And he was like miles away, so he walked for days to reach the Buddha. And he met the Buddha getting ready to go on alms round. And uh, he, he said, Venerable Sir, I've traveled a long way to see you. Teach me the Dharma in brief. And the Buddha said, You know, this isn't a good time. I'm getting ready to go for my meal. And and the Bahia said, please, Venerable Sir, teach me the Dharma in brief. And again, the Buddha refused. A third time, Bahia said, and he added this little bit, we don't know how long we will each uh, live. Please offer me the teachings in brief. And much of most of the time, I think there's only one or two places in the sutta where somebody asks the Buddha three times, he usually... Response and so this is the teaching he he gave to Bahia, and it's in two parts. The first part is an instruction. How he said this is how you should train yourself, and then he went on to offer, and this is the consequences of that training. So, how should you train yourself, Bahia? You should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, there will be only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. To me, this is pointing to uh, essentially recognizing these filters that we see through. When we are seeing through these filters, we are not meeting the scene as only the scene. It's being mediated through ideas, views, beliefs, craving, aversion, confusion. And so the training is to find a way towards meeting experience in that uh, in the Anapanika Terra called that bare attention bare attention, just the bare unfolding of phenomenon, which includes seeing the bare unfolding of the arising of craving, the unfolding of the arising of aversion. In the cognized is only the cognized. Aversion is just aversion. A thought is just a thought. So seeing, essentially, whatever arises in the mind-body as just an arising. Sayadaw Tejaniya would say, it's just an object. It's just an object. When we see experience in that way, in the scene is only the scene. And the Buddha continues. He says, when for you, 
there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. To me, this says, and the instruction is, meet experience. Learn to recognize objects as objects. We check our attitude to see, is there a filter involved? We often see a filter. Okay, not seeing, not the scene, and only the, and the scene is only the scene here. There's this filter. Okay, no, the filter. Oh, in the cognized is only the cognized. Aversion is present. When we find that place or when we meet experience without this mediation of greed, aversion, delusion, the Buddha says the consequences are you will understand there is no you in terms of that. So to me this says that there's not really a need to believe the teaching of anatta. We do the practice. The, the anatta, the understanding of not-self, is an insight It's not something we, not something we uh, can think our way through. Often, we get little tastes of it, perhaps, in our exploration of experience. Seeing, yeah, not in control here. We may begin to have a a, a reflective acceptance of that understanding over time. It's not something to pick up and carry around. And in fact, the teaching, the Buddha, the Buddha, you know, the Buddha actually um, encouraged us not to hold to any form of view. Even, Even saying, there is no self is a form of view. when we see things arising with right understanding, with wisdom, there's no notion of not-self. There's no notion of non-existence. When we see things ending with right view, there's no notion of self, no notion of existence. It's insight. So keep watching, keep exploring. Explore suffering. Explore the sense of self. You don't have to believe anything about it. Just get to know it. It will reveal itself to you. It will reveal its nature to you. All experience will reveal its nature when, when seen with wisdom. Wisdom.